Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Your greatness is good news for us. Uh, The natural tendency for the human being when coming into contact with your greatness is to shrink away, to move back. We see that in story after story, and especially the Old Testament, but in the New too, of people coming into contact with you and begging you to depart, to get away from them because they're utterly aware of their unworthiness. But as that song says, all we have to do is think about the cross of Jesus Christ and your greatness becomes something that we sing about and glory in and take great joy and comfort in. And Father, I pray that that would be the case here tonight. As we think right or seek to think rightly about you, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. So, as you might be able to tell, um, I'm using my laptop tonight because uh, my iPad was misplaced, which is what I usually use to take notes and to, uh, to um, uh, use as notes for my sermon. So, I hope you don't mind a computer in my face, but I will not be looking down at it too much. I will try to look you directly in the eyes long enough to make each of you feel very awkward. How about that? Is that a promise? Yeah, so uh, tonight we're going to be talking about what it means to think rightly about God, and we're going to be doing that by looking at a passage from chapter 1 of Romans, chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. A long passage, but a passage that is very exhaustive, I would say, in its description of humanity's big problem. And not to give away too much, but it has to do with the way we perceive God to be. And so, let me begin reading. It says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be made known about, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy. Murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, 
but give approval to those who practice them in the breeding. Well, how's that for a cheery passage? There's a lot to process there, a lot to deal with there, and I'm going to attempt to deal with as much as I can tonight. A.W. Tozer says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the single most important thing about us. He goes on, the history of mankind will probably be, will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts about God. In other words, um, to the, we recognize that as human beings, imperfect and fallible, that our thoughts about God are not going to be necessary. We're not going to have everything right. We're, we're probably, we're prone to err as human beings. We're prone to getting off balance. We're prone to believing one thing about God at the expense of another thing about God. And Tozer recognizes that this is true of all humanity, that humanity has always had gods, and whatever their view of God was shaped that culture and continues to shape that culture. And I'm not just talking broad culture. I'm talking shapes any group of people that consents to a certain view of God. However they view God will affect how they live. So, for example, you may think of God as just at the expense of his love. Some people, when they think of God, can't help but think of him being the one, you know, who throws lightning bolts at any of us who happen to commit a sin or fail at any given time. That's very real. There are people that really feel like that, that feel God is just out to get them. And, of course, there are people that so emphasize the love of God and so emphasize God's friendliness to us that they downplay his justice at every cost so that it seems like, well, you know, he's not all that upset with me. He kind of likes me, actually, and he doesn't mind that I've messed up. And so uh, it's important, even though we recognize that we're not going to be able to get everything just perfect because we're fallible human beings, to try and get our thinking about God as precise and accurate as we can. And we do that by, by trying our best to understand what the scriptures teach about them. And so the next number of weeks here, we're going to be going over certain attributes of God to try and just sharpen our thinking about him. To try and sharpen our understanding of him because, as Tozer said again, what we think about God is the most important thing about us. So what do we see? What happens when we think wrongly about God? That's what this text is all about. What happens when we think wrongly? Well, first of all, Verses 18 through 20 say suppression happens. Look again in your bulletin. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They push it down. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. The idea being presented is that human beings naturally know that God is there. They know that he's there. Everyone inherently knows there's a God. That's the first thing, first thesis statement Paul is making. The human beings all know he's there. 
Number two, he goes on to say that there's some things about God that they know to be true. Namely, his eternal power and divine nature. You can find that in verses 18 through 20. He says they've been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world by humanity. Humanity, so humanity knows there's a God and they know some things about God. His eternal power and his divine nature. But that's not all. Chapter 3, verse 12, uh, or excuse me, chapter 2, verse 15 says that everyone also knows what God expects of them morally. Because in that verse, in verse 15, it says his law is written on the hearts of human beings. In other words, Jiminy Cricket, your conscience. Your, it's, it's, it, the law of God is written on our hearts. We know what we ought to do. There's a sense in every human being that we know what we should be doing. We understand just intuitively that we shouldn't be murdering. Even if we do it, we understand we shouldn't be doing So that's the Bible's teaching. Everyone knows there's a God. Everyone knows some true things about God. And everyone also knows that this God has some expectations of them. But because of sin, they suppress these things. They seek to hold it down, restraining it from coming out. So then the question for us tonight is, do we see people acting like that? Is what Scripture presents here accurate of what we see in the world? Do we see people trying to suppress the truth about God? Yes. All the time. I was in a debate. It was a friendly, initially like a friendly debate. Like I wasn't, you know, I, I, I thought it was anyway. I mean, I, I wasn't upset. I wasn't angry. But um, I, had start, I had started to get into a discussion, I'll say, initially, with a couple of atheists. And I brought out some of the evidence that I looked to for my belief in God to them. Specifically, I shared with them uh, what I, that I believe that the uh, evidence for creation, just that this is not an unformed blob, but that there is something behind this universe we're in, and that the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually had good historical evidence to back it up. Those are the two things I was talking about. I just presented that to him, and I, I, and, um, and I was sort of shocked at first, because what happened is, I mean, the fangs came out. They didn't deal with my Satanists, they didn't deal with my claims, and they just started to mock me, I mean, mercilessly. It was like, you know, meme city. You know, just constant memes, you know, degrading and making fun of the stupid religious guy and the Christian, you know, all that stuff. Um, and you know what that is? What that is? Why was that? Why didn't they deal with the actual arguments presented? Romans 1. Pushing down the truth and unrighteousness. There's something that they heard. There's something that anytime we do that in life, anytime that we get defensive or angry, no matter what situation it is, it shows that there's a, there's a sense of insecurity there. And for whatever, I mean, this, this hit their insecurity. And when we're suppressing something, we can only hold it down so long. And if we hold it down long enough, it will come out in unhealthy ways. Like it will spring out. And so always the first step in the downward spiral, downward spiral of wrong thinking about God is the suppression of the truth. 
And chances are there's probably been a time in your own life, if you're a Christian, where even as a Christian you've heard something preached from the pulpit or you've read something in the Bible that didn't sit well with you and you were tempted or even did suppress that truth yourself. There's just certain things that we hear and we're like, mm, I like this, 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 and this. I, mm, I don't, I'm not sure about that. And actually I'm just going to like, go away. We're all, we're all prone to it. But there's, it's dangerous. And so that leads to the second step. It leads to the second step in the process and that's found in verse 21 and that's ingratitude. So obviously if people are suppressing the truth about God uh, then they certainly don't see fit to thank him for anything he's doing for them. As a matter of fact, they, they lack gratitude. The flow of Paul's argument goes like this. You know God's there and he is creator over all and all of your response has been meh. Like you know he's there and you're just like, well... Okay. I think, I mean, the greatest evidence of sin in my heart, in the human person, isn't so much that, that I'm doing like the most extreme amount of evil I can do at all times. That's not what we mean when we talk about the problem of sin in human beings, is that we're like just constantly doing the extreme amount of evil. No, I, I think honestly, the problem with us is that God is boring to the sinner. We're not compelled, we're not captivated by him. We're prone to saying, meh. Or even worse, giving credit to someone else for what he's done for us. And so when we think about, when we think wrongly about God, we suppress the truth about him, and then that leads to ingratitude, and then that eventually leads to exchanging him. Okay, so now we've gone even further. Now we're, we're just, we're, we've decided, okay, I, I know this God exists, but I'd rather not have that God. And so I'm going to find another God. I'm going to have a, some other thing I can worship. So look at verse 22 and verse 23 again. You can look in your bulletin. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now in that day, it was actually pretty common to see people literally bowing down to a statue of an animal that was an idol. Or a statue of the, what was to be the ideal male, i.e. Zeus. We see idols all throughout the Bible. The Israelites fall prey to them all the time. I mean, it, right from the beginning, they, they, what do they do? They exchange the glory of the immortal God after he delivers them from slavery in Egypt. God, God summons Moses to him, and what do the Israelites do when he leaves? Hey, let's build a golden calf and worship that thing. We'll, we'll exchange the glory of God for images. Now in our day, we think of ourselves as worship. Uh, we don't think of ourselves, obviously, as worshiping animals. Although, although I will say, if you've spent any time with some of the people in my building over here on 16th Street and watched them with their dogs... You might be prone to thinking they're, uh, they're, they're worshiping a little bit. Some of those dogs get treated like, like gods. Um, and though we do call our favorite celebrities idols in our culture, we don't always see that as a form of worship. But the reality is, the reality is, from this passage and many others, that as John Calvin has said, the human heart is an idol factory. 
It's producing other things to worship all the time besides the true God. That's our natural state is to produce different things that we can put our trust in. So whether someone claimed to be an atheist or agnostic or Jew or Muslim or Christian, whatever they may claim to be, it is impossible for human beings to live without some form of a God. It's true. There's no just giving up God, according to Paul here, and then just not having it. We just exchange. We exchange God for something else, something lesser. So Martin Luther in his large catechism, which, by the way, if you haven't read that, it's not long. Take a moment to read through the large catechism. I promise you, you won't be sorry. There's tremendous insights in that little book. But this is what he says in his comment on the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. He says, quote, a god is the term for that to which we are to look for all good and in which we are to find refuge in all need. Therefore, to have a God is nothing else than to trust in believe in that one with your whole heart. As I have often said, it is the trust and faith of the heart alone that make both God and an idol. End quote. So it's, the question is, what are you placing your faith in? What are you trusting in for your hope? So for some, their God that they place their trust in might be the God of naturalism. Or for some, the God they trace, uh, place their trust in might be their family. Here's the insidious thing about these gods that we can constantly exchange them, uh, the real God for, is they can be good things. I mean, they can actually be good things. We can exchange, we can put so much hope in our families or our friends or our jobs that can be all good things that we end up exchanging the true God for those things. We end up looking to them for our ultimate satisfaction, our ultimate hope, our ultimate significance and meaning in life. Every person is prone to this. So, We've exchanged the glory of the immortal God, and when that happens, at some point, we're told that God eventually, eventually, hands us over to do what we want. That's the word used. Hands us over. That's the next step in the process. The person thinking wrongly about God then starts to debase themselves. That's what verses 24 through 31 basically tell us here. Look at, look at again. Uh, look, at, look at the end here where he talks about sort of the culmination of all these things. He talks about women and men dishonoring their bodies and exchanging unnatural relations and all of these things. But then he sort of goes to this broad picture, this broad description of what a debased sort of human being looks like. And these are the words. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Uh, of evil, of, of covetousness, of malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. I always love this one. Disobedient to parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Can you use any more adjectives, Paul? Good night. I mean, he's got everything in there. The picture of humanity is just terrible. Paul has the lowest anthropology ever. The Bible has such a low anthropology with these kinds of descriptions. And Paul lists just about every sinful activity under the sun that can be mentioned. 
And this is what inevitably comes from having a false perception of who God is. Now, it's important to note here who the they is. Because Paul keeps on saying, they, they, they. They have been given over to do this and they and they and they. Who is they? Well, it's easy to assume from inside the church walls them. They are the debased ones. They are the ones who aren't worshiping at us right now. They're the ones who, aren't, who don't think rightly about God. But before you go pointing at they, take a moment to ask yourself if any of the things Paul lists here in this list are true of you or have been at some point. Have I had sexual relations with anyone outside of the covenant of marriage in thought or deed? If so, then you are the they. Have I coveted? Do I envy? Have I lied? Have I gossiped about someone? Do I get proud? Have I ever boasted in my own accomplishments? Have I ever been disobedient to my parents? I mean, folks, we are the they. And the reason we are, according to our text, is because something in our thinking is messed up. We suppress the truth about him. We, we have not been thankful and we have exchanged him for a God made in our own image that leads to the last step in the process before the results of our action come in and that is we become people, if not checked, that actually begin to approve of these evil things. That's the last thing he says, verse 32, that they become approvers of evil, inventors of evil, approving of those who do such things. In other words, wrong thinking leads to such darkness in our thinking that everything becomes flipped upside down. We call evil good and good evil. You ever look around at the world and think that, like, that's going on? You ever just see something and you're like, I just don't understand how, how this thing can be lauded when it seems so clearly bad to me? I think many feel like that right now when they look at the political system. That, that, that one side of the world could believe, or one side of the country could believe that this way is the right way. It's not, just, I can't, it's not just that I can't understand it, it's that I feel like it's evil being called good. Or vice versa. And what does that all result in? What's all the result? Well, you've got to go back to the very beginning. Verse 18, it results in God being pretty angry at this world. And the reason, it's not, because, it's not like God is, is this God who flies off the handle. It's not, I mean, he, you know, he's, he endures with his people for thousands of years as they, they you know, just kind of uh, 
obstinately disobey him and challenge him and dare him to do anything about their disobedience. And that wrath results in death. So the question is, who can escape his judgment? I mean, if, if everyone in here is honest, I mean, I went through that list. I mean, you've been disobedient to your parents. I mean, at least at some point in your life, it's, it's there. Who has possibly always thought rightly about God or hasn't been given over to sinful practices and thoughts and attitudes? There isn't anyone here or anywhere that has thought entirely right about God. There isn't anyone here who hasn't given him or who has given him the honor he's truly due. There isn't anyone who hasn't exchanged his glory for something else. All have sinned, as Paul will go on to say in Romans 3, and fall short of the glory of God, all. And I looked it up in Greek, and it means all. That is, except one. The one Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Son of Man. Never once does he suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Never. But as the very incarnation of the word of God, he exposes the truth of God fully for everyone to behold the glory of the one and only, as John the Apostle says. In every part of his life, he gives perfect honor and glory to his Father. Therefore, right before the cross, he can triumphantly say, I glorified you on earth, Father. I did it, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. I finished everything you gave me to do. Not one of us can stand with a straight face and say that before the Heavenly Father. Not one. But Jesus could. Never sinning when tempted by Satan to exchange the glory of the immortal God for bread or for power or for his own sake. He refused, saying, it is written, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. In fact, though we have each one of us exchanged the glory of the immortal God for false gods, Jesus Christ makes an exchange of an entirely different sort. He goes to the cross, and there on that cross, he will, the Bible says, exchange us with his righteousness for our sin. We have exchanged the glory of God for an idol. And Jesus, in great love, exchanges his righteousness given to us freely for all our sin. You want to know what you bring to the table when you come to God? Sin. You know what? You want to know what he gives you? Righteousness. Perfection. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Exchange, exchange, exchange. So the answer to the question, how do we who so fit the mold, who so are prone to thinking wrongly about God and still will in this life, like we'll still have struggles with this, how is it that we can avoid God and his wrath? Well, it's the same answer you heard if you grew up in Sunday school. It's the same answer you hear every week. It's just Jesus. It's just saying, Jesus, be my covering so that God doesn't see my mess. So that you don't see my mess, please cover me with your righteousness. 
so that my wrong thinking is excused and paid for, it's Jesus. That's the answer. And then, slowly but surely, you begin to build right thinking about God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you don't deal with us as our sins deserve, and we do deserve it. I thank you that you deal with us according to great love and great mercy. I pray, Father, for those of us who come in here suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, that you would not allow us to walk out of here doing that, but that you would cause us to come into the light unafraid, knowing that in Jesus all suppression and darkness is covered in light. In his name we pray. Amen.